0: Our world cannot afford to wait. We are at a moment of truth, but we have a breakdown of trust.
1: The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable Geelong. The Sustainable Hour.
2: Welcome to the Sustainable Hour podcast. We'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the land of the Wadawurrung people. We pay tribute to their elders past, present, and those that earn that great honour in the future. We acknowledge that they are custodians of the land. Ownership isn't something that is natural to them. We also acknowledge that we have a great debt of information in the ancient wisdom that they've honed from nurturing their land and their communities for millennia before it was stolen. We cannot hope to have any form of climate justice without justice for the First Nations people.
3: How about if we invested less in trying to grow our economies as our politicians are talking about all the time, and instead began to invest more in trying to grow our communities could that maybe lead to a better place tomorrow night at the city hall here in geelong there's an interesting meeting lined up with the title the climate crisis at home what council and communities are doing and you'll be meeting 12 of our local climate heroes the climate action leaders and they're all women who will be talking about what they're doing, what the challenges are, and what actions they're taking. MC for the event is Loretta Hart, who we know here from 94.7 The Pulse. So that's going to be an interesting meeting. It begins at 5.30 tomorrow afternoon at the City Hall in Geelong. And we'll put a link to that in our show notes, because it's important to register. As they say, you do that at a, a website called humanitix.com. Here in the Sustainable Hour, we are ready, but first of all, it's time to broaden our horizon as usual, expand our global outlook. So we have Colin Market OAM, and what do you have for us today, Colin?
4: Yes, hello Mick, it's nice to be here again. And our roundup today begins in Belgium, where the nation's parliament last week voted in favor of a new penal code for the country, which for the first time in Europe includes recognition of the new crime of ecocide. The law is aimed at preventing and punishing severe cases of environmental degradation, such as, well, oil tanker spills. They've got away with it in the past by just simply mopping it up, but now this new law makes somebody responsible. Uh, The punishment... um, will apply to both corporations and decision-makers, individuals in high positions. The punishment for individuals goes up to 20 years in prison, while corporations could face fines of up to 1.6 million euros. The scope of this new law covers areas of the North Sea and also nuclear waste management. And the driver behind the bill, Patricia Wilcock who is director of Stop Ecocide in Belgium, said that Belgium's law was likely to be the first of many because now all 27 member states of the European Union are tasked with aligning their domestic penal codes alongside with it. It's likely to spread throughout the whole of Europe. Further news from Europe is that the continent's coal industry is closing at a faster rate even than the United States. A projection released last week showed that 20% of the EU's coal-fired generators will close in the next two years, with coal generation falling below 100 gigawatts. Germany is leading the closures, while Greece has joined the 50% Renewables Club for the first time. That means that its wind, solar and hydro now contributes to 54% of its power generation. In comparison, the US still generates 180 gigawatts of its power from coal, having closed 22.3 gigawatts in the last two years. Now, all of this comes at a time when one of Australia's leading climate scientists reported that the world is warming much faster than any previous models have predicted. After the world recorded its hottest year in history, which was last year, global temperature records have been shattered over the first weeks of 2024, causing concern among scientists at the speed of which the temperature records keep falling. It looks to me that warming is happening faster than it should be, faster than the models are projecting, said Dr. Bill Hare, who's founder and CEO of Climate Analytics. He said that on Sunday of last week. Twelve of the hottest temperatures recorded on Earth were in Western Australia last week. By the Wednesday of last week, the hot air mass had crossed the country, accelerating fires in Victoria and storms and floods in New South Wales. And we're not alone. Last month was the warmest January on record globally, with surface air temperatures 0.12 degrees warmer than the previous record that was set in 2020. The six weeks of 2024 figures follow eight months of record-breaking heat, Climatologist and weather historian Maximiliano Herra, who traces extreme weather, identified record high temperatures across America and parts of Asia so far this year. In Japan, 480 records fell over three days, some by up to six degrees, he said. This is the most extreme event in 150 years of Japanese climactic history he said. And it's not just the atmosphere that is cooking. Sea surface temperatures have been exceptionally high for this time of year, with the average January temperature this year 0.66 degrees above average. At the bottom of the world, the high temperatures have led to dramatic loss of sea ice in Antarctica, where record low coverage was recorded last year. It's now even worse. And finally, a new paper out which is essentially a biography of uh, China's leader, Xi Jinping. And it's, what concerns us is that it shows that Xi was green long before it became fashionable with leaders. It turns out that he was crucial to the Paris Accord. Some 20 years ago, when he was a regional party chief in Xinjiang, He wrote a weekly column, uh, and several of them warned that China's energy-intensive and high-polluting economic model was unsustainable. This completely defied the Communist Party policy of breakneck industrialization, which was always chasing a higher GDP. That, That was the nation's only target at the time. From his position of regional leader in 2004, Xi launched a radical green GDP program in Xijiang. It called on local governments to subtract ecological damage from their raw GDP figures. He was defeated at the time by what was termed vested interest, which is code for China's powerful coal lobby. They've got one too. Um, Today, although Xi is the nation's virtual dictator, He's still very wary of this coal group and he's careful not to force a showdown with them. Instead, he circumvented them by giving renewable companies priority access to cheap credit from his state controlled banks. That's the way he offsided the coal industry. And it's very, very clever when you think about it. And it could be used as a model for our governments. Now, the brains behind Xi's original green GDP movement was a fellow by the name of Xi Zanzhoua, who is today China's climate negotiator and the man who paved the way for the Paris Climate Accord. He helped Xi overcome entrenched opposition from China's old guard by showing that climate concessions wouldn't restrain China's development. This led to Xi Jinping's Thai evening chat with Barack Obama and the deal that when they made on that evening led to the Paris and made the Paris Agreement possible. And that in turn led to China becoming the world's leading manufacturer of environmental industries from solar panels to wind turbines. And that small surprising piece of world history closes my roundup for this week, Mick.
1: Listen to our Sustainable Hour for the future.
3: Our first guest today in the Sustainable Hour is Stephen Hale and Gabby Bond, who we've had on before in the Sustainable Hour, I think actually a couple of times, with their modern money lab. Welcome. Thank you. The reason for that is that certainly here in Melbourne region, the Sustainable Living Festival is featuring lots of talk about money this year. Economy and economists are in the program. There's a new film and so on. So we thought it would be great to hear your views. And I know you've also had a say in, in the program, haven't you? You've been helping with the organizing it. Yeah, that's
5: right. Um, uh, thank you. Thank you for having us on the show. We're here on the land of the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains. I thought I should just acknowledge um, whose country we're joining from today. Um, yes, yeah, so the Sustainable Living Festival um, is a, a fantastic month-long festival which um, I'm sure all of uh, Melbourne uh, is is aware of and we have two events actually that are part of it. Well, one which is in the the... Um, the February program, which, which is, is it's today, yes Wednesday night, and it starts at six thirty, and it's at the theatre at State Library Theatre at, um, and it's a documentary film. Uh, it's called Finding the Money. It's made by this brilliant um, filmmaker called Marin Poitras, who's actually in Australia, a US filmmaker. She's come to Australia to um, show the film, and she'll be there along with Stephen and myself. Um, and the, the film basically follows uh, the story of modern monetary theory and in particular follows Stephanie Kelton as she goes and talks to uh, all sorts of people, leaders, um, explaining about the idea that the, the deficit is not something to be scared of and it's actually finding the money is the easy part. It's finding the real resources and the political will to make change. We
6: have um, Stephanie Kelton joining us for much of the next month. She was the uh, chief economic advisor to Bernie Sanders on both his presidential campaigns and has been uh, chief economist on the Democrat side on the Senate Budget Committee in Washington, D.C. Uh, Some people might be familiar with her 2020 book, The Deficit Myth, which I think is the best-selling economics book in the world in recent years. Um, she won't be here today because she hasn't arrived in the U.S. yet, but she will be at the other Sustainable Living Festival event, which is a Radio National interview on Saturday, the ninth? March the 9th, mm. yes, in the afternoon, again in the theatre at the State Library. On the previous night, which is uh, on the 8th of February, which is International Women's Day, we are showing the movie with a Q&A with the filmmaker and Stephanie Afterwards, and uh, Emma Dawson from Per capita, uh,
5: Shireen Morris, Shireen Morris, who's, uh, yes, very well known
6: constitutional, constitutional lawyer yep. at Trades Hall. But that event has sold out. Sorry,
5: folks. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> yeah, we, all the, we, we might, all, all we the want, tickets are gone. Yeah, we might
6: run another. We might run another screening later on in Melbourne <laughs> while sure. Stephanie's here. But we're touring the country, so we'll be in Sydney, Brisbane, Canberra, here in Adelaide. Uh, And also the Bangalore Film Festival to show the movie.
3: So, please explain to our listeners why do you think there's this interest in this topic of money and economy? Why are people flocking and and you're getting sold out events?
6: Uh, We are, it's great that we're getting sold out events. We're quite, I don't know about the why. That's been a bit of a surprise, actually. Um, Why we think it's important. We've been, we spend, well, I've spent, more than 10 years, I couldn't say how long, trying to drag two things together. Um, One of them is ecological economics, an approach to uh, economic issues which respects planetary boundaries, including, but of course not limited to, greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. That is vital. That's where all economics should start from. But if we we want to get to where we ought to be (laughs) aiming to get to, which is a sustainable, just, economy in the future and the sort of things colin was talking about previously then we have to understand the monetary system as well and understanding the monetary system starts from an understanding that the federal government is in a completely different position to everyone else so when people talk about the government needing to run its budget the way you and i do that's utter nonsense the government is the currency issuer we're currency users we have to find dollars before we can spend them With the government, it's the other way around. Every dollar that the federal government spends, and they spend more than $2 billion a day, is a new dollar. It increases every measure of the money supply in Australia dollar for dollar. What federal taxes do is delete some of those dollars which the government has previously spent into the system. Um, This explains why the Australian government has been able to run deficits almost the whole time since federation. The same thing is true of the U.S. government almost the whole time since there's been a U.S. government. Deficits are nothing to be scared of. They can be too high and they can be inflationary. They can be spent on the wrong things like the military-industrial complex. (laughs) Submarines. when it comes to building the future that we want to build, that's a problem to do with the organisation of real resources, people, skills, capital equipment, technology, materials, Um, finding the money in itself for the federal government is not the problem. So if you ever hear uh, a government minister saying, well, we'd just love to do that, but there's nowhere to pay for it, or we can't find the money, what they're doing is they are characterising what is a political decision as though it's a decision like you running out of money in your bank account. The Australian Commonwealth government has never and will never run out of Australian dollars. It changes your perspective on everything really it changes your perspective when you're thinking about inflation uh, if we're thinking about inflation risk then we need to look at how much spare capacity there is in those parts of the economy that we need to expand in order to build the infrastructure that we want in the future for a steady state or post-growth economy uh, it uh, perhaps focuses you on the causes of inflation. Amongst the, the, a big cause of inflation in the years to come is going to be climate change. Yeah. In the recent past has been the pandemic and the Russia-Ukraine war and the impact that's had on energy prices and food prices. It leads you to reason that actually in some cases more government spending can reduce inflationary pressures because it can attack the root causes of what's going on as far as inflation is concerned. We're not getting rid of of limits on government spending. But we are saying what we're limited by as a country is our productive resources. We're not limited by a lack of Australian
0: dollars.
3: So then how does that translate into politics? Is there actually a party or are there several parties that have understood this and who will be you know, campaigning on this agenda that you're talking about at the next election? Well,
6: it's had uh, much more influence in the U.S. than here and he, for a variety of reasons, may not win the next presidential campaign. But Stephanie Kelton was part of the Biden-Sanders transition team and has greatly influenced uh, what ended up as the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. and a big increase in investments in uh, decarbonizing, albeit not the way we'd like to or as quickly as we'd like to see it happen, uh, the U.S. economy. So it's been much more influential there than here, but uh, an economist who I respect a great deal, but I promised I wouldn't use his name, wrote uh, in response to a review that a New Zealand journalist published a couple of days ago of the movie, that if this movie gets out there and people actually see it, it will end the MMT debate. In other words, everybody will think this way. And that's what we're trying to do, really. It's not available at the moment on streaming services because the audience for this movie and its influence has to be built up over time. We've tried academic papers. There are lots of academic papers relating to modern monetary theory down through the last 30 years. Hardly anybody reads them. They just disappear into nothing. We've written books. We've, it, Stephanie's written, as I said, the world's best-selling economics book, and that hasn't penetrated our leading political parties in mm-hmm. Australia. So let's see whether we can do it through a movie we harp on here
2: continually about the influence of lobbyists and uh, mm-hmm. negative lo- lobbyists the uh, big business corporations etc uh, I'm just wondering what if they would are they ones that are blocking this as well like the changes um, that
6: you are recommending uh, a, a little but actually it's it's kind of more complicated than that and I don't think it's a matter of a conspiracy or anything at uh, the economic narrative has been more or less, I mean, despite Keynes in the 30s, more or less the same for at least 150 years. And it was based in the first place on a story about money and the emergence of money, which was wrong and has been the basis of the ideology of free market capitalism. The story that economic students are still told is that um, there was once a, a barter based economy and that gold or silver or some other commodity were adopted as a convenient means of exchange to reduce transaction costs. But money was invented within the private sector as a commodity and governments came along later on basically and invented fiat money and interfered in the economy and messed everything up. That has never happened, not once in human history at any stage. We have overwhelming evidence from archaeologists and anthropologists that's not the story of money. Money was invented by early governments as a way of organising real resources. More than 5,000 years ago, we have evidence of this in ancient Mesopotamia. But uh, if you want a recent, more recent story, when the British invaded another part of the world in the 19th century, how did they get people to work for them? They imposed a tax. So they invaded what is now Ghana. They imposed a hut tax. They said... Uh, We'll demolish your home and lock you in prison unless you pay us your taxes. By the way, you have to pay us your taxes using these coins with Queen Victoria's head on. Oh, you don't have any coins with Queen Victoria's head on. That's okay. Come and build some road for us or grow some food for us. We'll pay you for doing that. And then you can use some of the coins that we pay you with to pay your taxes back to us. Now, that's the true story of money. Governments spend currency into existence as basically tax anticipation notes. Uh, you, you get that currency, if you're go- going through that story, either by working directly for the government or by trading with people who are working for the government to get the currency so that you can pay your taxes. If the government spends more than it takes back in taxation, the government's running a deficit. But guess what? You're running a surplus. And you can save that surplus. So where do the dollars come from? that the private sector can add to its net savings, they come from government deficits. And that's why it's normal historically, and it continues to be normal now, whatever politicians say, for a currency issue in governments like our own to run deficits. And it's why Australian Commonwealth gov- the Australian Commonwealth government has run a deficit almost the whole time since Federation.
4: From the perspective that I come from, I'm a past journalist, mm. it's the way things are reported and Mm -hmm. therefore our understanding, because we read it in the papers, there's always a monetary value put on everything. And nowadays, it's not just a monetary value, it's also a jobs value, because Mm -hmm. the politicians who invariably launch new things wearing high-vis vests will tell you how many jobs are being created, quite apart from how much this new scheme is going to cost. So instead of Well, instead of telling you the value of the thing, I mean, if they might say this is a new bypass road, it's going to be um, uh, very valuable in stopping congestion in the town that it bypasses. That doesn't count. It's going to cost $45 million, and it's going to create 450 jobs over the course of the next two years. They are the only values that they're interested in.
6: Well, absolutely. I'd like to think that Jim Chalmers, our treasurer, is, has broader interests than that. He's introduced uh, uh, a measure in what matters and um, 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 schedule of statistics, which you can look up on on, uh, on the tre- treasury website. Uh, it's not spoken about enough, and he hasn't taken it far enough. And he's intimidated, like they all are, by um, by sections of the media, but also by and the economists, or many of the economists, are advising them. Now, the good news is that amongst younger generations of economists in policy institutions, there are an increasing number of them that think like us. But the people of our age, or my age, uh, uh, Gabby's a bit younger than me, uh, who are in a position of influence, I'm I'm afraid they're still very conservative and old-fashioned in the way that uh, you're you're talking about. And we really don't have time to wait Mm -hmm. for them to retire or to pass away so that the next generation can come along and deal with the problems that we're setting up at the moment. We need to move things on a bit more quickly than that. And that's part of what we're doing uh, with the movie and various media appearances, some of which I can't really tell you about, that Stephanie's going to do while she's here, because I'm concerned that uh, uh, the dark forces, and we do face some dark forces, would have those appearances cancelled if they were public Mm -hmm. at the moment. But there will be some media appearances. We are going to make a loud noise, um, because we think it's important. We think it's vital that um, environmentalists and ecologists understand the monetary system because it's sort of an instruction manual for how to run the economy. But it's also vital that people that understand the monetary (laughs) system start from an ecological basis because the ecological basis tells you the direction you need to steer in. Yeah.
5: So that goes back to what you were saying before, is trying to bring those two things together the planetary boundaries, and the idea of that we can't just keep expanding forever with the tools to actually build the future that we want and need. Absolutely,
6: yeah. Um, and that's really what the move is about. I think, as the economist that I quoted before, thought, I think this might be the most important documentary I've ever seen. That's why I want to spread it far and wide basically win the debate. Um, We we don't have time for messing about. I don't want to run courses just for the sake of running courses. I don't want to uh, uh, go around touring a movie just for the sake of touring a movie. I want to change economic policy in Australia,
0: and I want to change it soon. I'm a big corporation. Of course, I'm going to sell your products in plastic sachets. Even if our planet is drowning in plastics already. I'm a big corporation, of course, I'm going to tell you that my packaging is recyclable. Even if less than 10% of plastics are recycled globally. I'm a big corporation, of course, I will use waste management as an excuse for me to produce even more plastics. I'm a big corporation, of course, I'm going to produce billions of plastic packaging because it's cheap and I make money. I'm a big corporation. Of course, I'm going to blame you for all the plastic waste because I'm not going to reduce my plastic production. I'm a big corporation. Of course, I'm gonna burn those plastic waste even if it's toxic. I'm a big corporation. Of course, I will prioritize my profit over the
4: people and the planet.
7: <laughs>
4: I'm aware that you are touring the film, finding the money, and I can understand that that's a good idea because you can combine it with um, with talks with the filmmaker and bring the subject up to audiences. But have you? Will you be putting it? For um, on the internet so that people can see it wherever they are. It's
6: not our film, Colin. It's been produced by Maran Poitras, who uh, has done it on a shoestring budget over six or seven years. It's taken a long time for her to do. Latterly, she has got some help with financing, but um, it, it, it's, we don't own the film, yeah. so it won't be our decision. But I believe the plan is to tour it around the world to get policymakers to see it, to get journalists to review it, to have a widespread conversation. And when that happens, then hopefully one or more of the big screening services will share it. If you just put it on YouTube, it won't have the credibility. So you really have to have a strategy for building an audience, getting a bigger reach, and then eventually, yes, it will end up on YouTube or somewhere and people will be able to see it, but... um, that's the, that's the plan, and uh, you know, we just have to go along with it because it's, we didn't make yeah. the movie. It's, <laughs> we don't own it. Yeah. Thanks,
2: Stephen. That's all and, right. Yeah, Gabriella, I think one thing we didn't mention a lot here, and we don't have time to, is the course that you're running, which is a, a global first.
5: In a nutshell, we're running a, a master's degree um, and graduate certificate and graduate diploma, Hundred percent online, and it's combining those two things that we've talked about before: the modern monetary theory and the ecological economics. Those are the two pillars of our course. A- okay. Terrific, isn't
2: it? <laughs> and we'll put a link to that in the uh, in a, in the show notes. Okay, Excellent. our next guest is Mark Tilley. So, welcome, Mark. Thanks for coming on. You are a senior reporter with Carbon Pulse, which is a, a newsletter on carbon markets greenhouse gas pricing and climate policy.
8: Thanks for, thanks for having me on today. Uh, yeah, so I uh, write uh, for Carbon Pulse. Uh, I've been writing with them for about two years now. And, yeah, so it's a UK-based publication uh, that, as you said, focuses on uh, greenhouse gas pricing, carbon markets and climate policy. There is uh, around 25 of us uh, scattered around the world um, we have uh, reporters in Australia and uh, Southeast Asia, uh, and uh, Europe, the US, etc. And so, yeah, we're, we're kind of we're covering uh, the broad uh, uh, the scope of, of how greenhouse gas pricing, uh, carbon taxes, and carbon markets, uh, as well as broader climate policy, is progressing uh, in in the goal to uh, hopefully reduce uh, emissions and uh, achieve our climate ambitions and uh, meeting the goals of the Paris Agreement. Uh, so as part of that, uh, each year, we uh, a team of us is sent to the uh, COP talks, the Conference of the Parties talks, which are the uh, annual uh, hot talks held by the UN designed to uh, convene all of these sorts of policies and ambitions and movements uh, and uh, trying to get everyone to basically pull in the same direction, uh, in terms of, uh, reducing emissions. Um, and so, uh, I've been to, uh, two of these cops. The first one I went to was in uh, 2022 in Egypt. And uh, then last year I was in, uh, Dubai for cop 28 in the UAE. Um, and so the atmosphere of these things are—it's—it's it's a bit of a whirlwind because you, the scale and scope of these talks are, are quite huge, are quite large. Um, last year uh, at in Dubai, there was around eighty-five thousand people in attendance, and uh, it's been uh, growing to that level consecutively year on year. Um, and yeah, so you, you have about yeah you have one hundred and eighty countries all coming together, trying to negotiate plans to reduce emissions and keep uh, global temperatures below one and a half degrees. Uh, and because of the consensus-driven nature of the process uh, in that every, all parties need to agree to the same thing, everything is, uh, nothing is agreed to unless everything is agreed to, uh, it can be incredibly difficult and incredibly intense which is why there is always a a sort of high-stakes brinksmanship in the negotiations that you see uh, towards the tail end of the talks each year. Uh, And um, the the talks themselves are quite interesting uh, because they've evolved quite a lot in the last few years. Uh, Initially, they were once these very sort of technical uh, talks between diplomats and officials and and the like, and now it's it's morphed into something of a a trade show, uh, given that countries and companies are trying to drum up investment into these various uh, green initiatives. Um, On the one hand, countries do need to attract capital and investment in order to execute the energy and net zero transitions that they're embarking on. Um, But on the other hand, there is a growing sentiment that the talks are kind of... Losing sight of perhaps its key purpose. Um, what's exacerbated this partially is the growing presence of fossil fuel lobbyists at these talks. Uh, but some groups uh, said last year there are about two and a half thousand representatives of the fossil fuel industries at these talks, and there are various uh, increasing reports of various fossil fuel supply deals. Being conducted uh, during these talks between countries and producers, um, another factor is that the countries that are hosting these talks in recent years produce large volumes of fossil fuels. So, in 2022, it was Egypt that hosted the talks uh, last year. It was uh, the UAE, and uh, given that the the, the chair, the president uh, of the of the COP at last year. Is also the the chief of uh, the UAE state oil company, and next year uh, it's going to be uh, hosted by Azerbaijan, which is a, another uh, what many would consider to be a, a petro state. Um, and so, um, yeah, and it's 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 there's definitely some voices out there that are that questioning this COP process now, um, particularly and, and and its effectiveness, uh, particularly that we've given that we've had twenty eight of these talks and uh, global emissions are still on the rise. So, Mark, I think
3: every child on this planet can see that uh, if we put a tax on fossil fuels and make them more expensive, people would begin to look elsewhere, you know, to where electricity and, and energy was cheaper. So regulating and taxing fossil fuels seems the very, very obvious economic tool that politicians have. And yet we're seeing, as we saw here in Australia, that uh, when there's a suggestion to make fossil fuels more expensive, then there's an uproar. And that comes both from the people who are selling it, but also from people who are just buying the stuff. And we're thinking, oh, that's going to make my life terrible. Uh, if, if energy prices go up in this and this way, they're not thinking that they could make the switch. So what's the global outlook on taxing fossil fuels? Because it is actually happening here and there, isn't it? It's just here in Australia that we think it's impossible.
8: Uh, yes. Uh, so, uh, in, in the Asia Pacific region, there there are a, a few uh, carbon taxes either functioning as we speak or uh, in in development. New Zealand obviously has an uh, has a emissions trading scheme that has been active for some years. And then in Indonesia, there is uh, current talks of introducing a carbon tax, and that is expected to come into effect in twenty twenty five. And there has been some uh, delay on that uh, uh, because of the current presidential election and the administrative transfer and, and, and the like. Uh, and in Singapore, there is a carbon tax that is currently where emitters will be paying twenty five dollars a ton this year, and it'll rise to forty five dollars a ton of CO two in twenty twenty six. So there are there is various movements on carbon taxing and uh, on carbon pricing in the region and globally. In Australia as well, uh, it's it's kind of hard to see it because it is a, it's a quite technical policy, but we do actually have a form of uh, carbon price in the form of the safeguard mechanism, which was recently reformed by the current government, the Labour government, and that is designed specifically for the top 200 largest polluting facilities in the country. Uh, So things like LNG export facilities, uh, alumina and aluminium refineries and airlines and and the like, each facility that emits over 100,000 tonnes of carbon uh, of greenhouse gas emissions per year. Um, And so that that could be considered a form of uh, carbon pricing because there is a sliding baseline on those uh, emissions baseline basically for those facilities. And if uh, a facility is... I'm Seen to be uh, is uh, over emits that li- over across that line. It means then that they either have to pay a fine f- uh, or offset their emissions by using uh, Australian carbon credit units or uh, safeguard mechanism credits. So there is technically it is a form of carbon pricing, but it is only for a very small subset of Australian industry.
4: Yes, the benchmark on carbon politically. Uh, was set by Tony Abbott when he took away the price that was put there by the Labour government of Julia Gillard. And that has turned what should be a sensible move in Australia into a toxic political football. Can you, Mark, ever see a time when that doesn't occur, when we get both sides of our parliament pulling together for the environment?
8: Yes, well, as you said, it is uh, quite politically untouchable at this point in time because it was such a uh, definitive point in our history where that uh, carbon price was removed. Um, It does seem to be still quite uh, unapproachable politically. Uh, We had... Uh, Last week, uh, uh, or the week before, sorry, you had the leading economist Ross Garneau and his Superpower Institute, along with the former ACCC chair, Rod Sims, proposed the idea of a uh, carbon solutions levy on all fossil fuel uh, exporting facilities and uh, exports, I think it was. And uh, even they were uh, uh, admitted uh, that right now that they did not expect to see that uh, that subject or idea to be uh, really considered by the current politicians and the the, the current sort of political uh, thinking, and so uh, it's and and they they I, I asked them uh, that question when I spoke to them uh, spoke to Ross a couple of uh, uh, weeks ago, and he he himself didn't wasn't entirely sure when. Uh, Australian politicians would would have the nerve, perhaps, you could say, to to seriously consider it again. But, uh, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily entirely outside of the realm of possibility, uh, particularly as uh, time progresses and and we're supposed to be meeting these targets, these these targets uh, that we're supposed to be meeting uh, become ever and ever closer.
3: Isn't the mistake we make in society as a whole that we don't make a connection between all the expenses we are now seeing from the flooding, the extreme weather events, the fires, all the losses that are happening, which runs up to billions of dollars and which are paid by us, the people in the countries around the world. And there's no connection between that and then the burning of fossil fuels. So if that connection was established in in people's minds, then we would suddenly see, oh, maybe we should find a way to to finance all our losses uh
8: yes i think uh i think there is a a growing uh sense that the 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 growing rate of natural disasters uh, that we are seeing uh globally is is linked to our use of fossil fuels and, uh, you know, there's growing recognition that, that we need to reduce those, uh, reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. But that said, that e- even, if, uh, even if those carbon pricing policies and the like do take effect, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that everything is uh, solved and that, that they aren't, uh, you know, subject to, to political influence. I mean, obviously, you saw in Australia's case where the uh, carbon uh, price was abolished. Uh, and in New Zealand, for example, uh, last year, uh, at the end of sorry, at the end of 2022, uh, there was their emissions trading scheme was uh, watered down slightly uh, because of the fear that it would have uh, that it would have on inflation, that it would cause to uh, inflation, and so um, there are those links uh, between people are understanding those links between. The growing disasters of uh, and, and, and climate change and fossil fuel use, but at the same time, there can be real-world impacts, perhaps, uh, of those policies that are meant to address it. That people are that uh, politicians, at least, are also concerned will have an effect on uh, on consumers, uh, and and uh, that plays in the mo- in, in a part of the process as well. I think.
3: Stephen and Gabrielle, I, I noticed you were shaking your heads when we talked about this. Just,
6: you did mention financing, Mike. Mike. We don't need their money. We need them to stop uh, emitting carbon dioxide, but we, they're not financing anything. It's, when they pay the tax, we're just going to burn the money. We create our own currency as a federal government. We do not need Gina Reinhart's money or anybody else's yeah. money to pay for decarbonisation. We are the currency issuer. We do need them to stop, and if by taxing them we can get them to stop or get them to stop quicker, then, then that's great. It's
5: such a tempting trap, right, mm-hmm. to think, oh, well, well, we'll put a tax on pollution and use that money to fix up the problems that pollution has caused. It's a really easy political thing to sell. You know, you see the Greens doing it all the time. But what that does is it locks in the idea that we need to keep these big polluters in business, because we need their money to fix the problems that they're creating. It's such a trap, and please don't do it anymore. I like I <laughs> everyone. Like, stop doing
6: I, that. I, I like. <laughs> I like the. Uh, I mean, this doesn't literally happen because people don't pay taxes using physical currency. But what used to happen hundreds of years ago when people paid their taxes using tally sticks was the tally sticks were burnt, and that's what happens at the federal level with taxation now. It's It basically is deleted from the system. So um, taxes, um, carbon tax is great. I'm a bigger fan of emissions trading schemes because I believe in quantitative limits. Uh, But carbon taxes are great, but they don't pay for anything. Uh, And we're
8: going to keep saying that. We're not going to stop saying that because it's the truth. There is is definitely an active debate around how, uh, you know, the, whether there is a credible role for um, fossil fuel producers to play in, in this energy transition and, this net, uh, and, and funding that transition. I mean, there is, there is a big argument out there that says that, you know, these producers, they have the, um, the, the technical expertise and the engineering know-how to develop the solutions that we need to decarbonize. Uh, You just need to sort of perhaps provide the right incentives to uh, get them to do that. Um, But at the same time, uh, yes, there is, uh, we've obviously seen uh, in the last year or so these uh, large producers such as uh, BP and Shell and and the like uh, actively uh, water down their climate commitments and their decarbonisation plans and investment in green energy basically because of the, uh, the the massive rise in the oil price uh, after the invasion of Ukraine by Russia so yeah I think I think there is a valid uh, there could be a valid argument about uh, how what you know whether whether these companies are interested really at all in in, in this uh, this transition and so yeah to your point uh, I think uh, perhaps yeah there is there is definitely a, a strain of thought that governments just need to get on and just start funding these things on their own rather than waiting for these companies to come around to the idea.
2: It seems their unwillingness to to make those changes is because they're making so much money as it is and the efforts that they've put in uh, over decades now, knowing the damage they were causing but continuing, it, it, it's probably going to t- take a number of, of methods and I think one that excites me is that the crime of ecocide, where they're going to be held to account for the damage that they're, they're causing. So it's, yeah, a multi-frontal attack on them, I guess, or approach on them uh, to be less aggressive. But, yeah, they're not going to change of their own accord. It's going to be something they're going to have to be forced and and yeah, ecocide's as good a, a way. So that, 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 in a way, is the law putting a value on the ecological damage that they're causing, holding them to account for that is, is going to be very much part of the solution.
3: The carbon pulse, where are you at and uh, who are your readers and, and why should we be
8: reading the carbon pulse? So uh, a lot of our, uh, our readership is, uh, is within uh, the financial system, uh, within its... Uh, Fossil fuel producers themselves, uh, as well as uh, broader sort of academics and NGOs and the like. Um, so we uh, and, and it's 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 basically looking at uh, this evolving uh, idea of that there there is a need to put a price on emissions um, and uh, trying to uh, basic follow those developments uh, in. Uh, as closely as possible, as accurately as possible, and as uh, balanced as possible, I suppose you could say. Um, and uh, so it's uh, yeah, it's it's a very uh, it's a, a very um, straightforward publication. It's very no nonsense. We uh, put out a daily newsletter, uh, and uh, we've recently uh, started uh, reporting on biodiversity markets and policy. Uh, because that is another sort of uh, realm of uh, finance that uh, Australia, uh, in particular, is is, is, one, and some, is one of many other uh, other countries that is looking to uh, explore how to encourage uh, investment uh, in nature restoration and sort of address those the biodiversity side of that dual crisis of climate change and biodiversity loss. Uh, and uh, that, while uh, the, uh, our uh, climate and carbon pricing side of things uh, of our publication is uh, behind a paywall, our uh, biodiversity coverage is free to read. So uh, if you uh, are interested in, uh, in that emerging nature market and uh, conservation uh, policies and developments, uh, then uh, you'd be more, to, more than welcome to uh, yes, uh, I- explore that side of the website.
3: And where do we find you on the internet?
8: Uh, So it's uh, carbon-pulse.com.
3: The Independent Senator David Pocock has suggested a new bill which is going to enshrine in Parliament that politicians have a climate change duty of care for children. And not surprisingly, it looks like both of the two major parties are going to block this bill of Pocock's. And you just wonder, why would they not think that they have a duty to ensure a safe future from climate breakdown for our kids and for our country? I think we should demand, now that we are soon in the lead up to the next election, that we get the Australian Labour Party and the Liberals and the Nationals to explain that to us. Why do you not have a duty of care for the children in our country?
1: From the first day in medical school we're taught about our duty of care to our patients Um, and to not act on that is medical negligence and I would put the same thing towards the government to say if you're not acting on behalf of the duty of care that you have to every future Australian that will come, whether they're born here or whether they immigrate here, I think that's also an act of negligence. So it's
8: the RNZCP's view that this bill uh, will be an excellent enshrinement of the duty of care towards young people and future generations to come. The concept
4: is absolutely right in our view and it's critical that we do something about this now.
8: This this bill is something that needs to happen as soon as possible because every day that passes is a day where um, the the harms of climate change are worsening.
5: If we don't act now we are creating future harm. To not consider the climate change impacts on children is an omission like it's missing out something that is very
4: very harmful. I also think that if uh, yeah we have this duty of care bill, that this will have a very significant effect potentially on young people's uh, mental health and level of climate distress, because it's it's really a combination of what they see in terms of the climate situation, but also you know the lack of action. Um,
8: This is about a duty of
5: care to all and the most vulnerable. I'm you know concerned if policy decisions are being you know, occurring when the health and well-being of all Australians, both current and future generations, are not at the forefront of those decisions. And that is really concerning, again, for those most vulnerable, so First Nations peoples, um, young peoples, those in lower socioeconomic areas, those in rural and regional uh, Australia. Um, You know, we need to position their health and well-being at the forefront of our decisions.
1: so we're not just talking about putting children first we're putting about every future Australian regardless of their age um at the forefront of all policy making and government decisions. And I know from the first day in medical school, we're taught about our duty of care to our patients. Um, and to not act on that is medical negligence. And I would put the same thing towards the government to say if you're not acting on behalf of the duty of care that you have to every future Australian that will come, whether they're born here or whether they immigrate here, I think that's also an act of negligence.
5: I feel like, you know, this is a wonderful opportunity for our government to do the right thing by our kids. And, um, you know, I just hope we take it.
3: At a hearing last week, we heard doctors like this, nurses, students, scientists, and emergency workers who all came together with lawyers from across Australia to voice their support for legislating a duty of care bill to protect young people and future generations. And you can also add your voice. There is a petition site. It's simply called adutyofcare.com.au, where you can put your name down. Also, a new month, March month, is coming up later this week. And the March Letitian letter, Letitian being this letter sending system that you find at Letitian.org, is going to be about contacting your local member and making sure that they support David Pocock's duty of care bill. That's all we could fit in one sustainable hour, uh, full of money and economy and good thinking about how we solve the climate crisis.
5: If you're in Melbourne, hopefully we might see you tonight at the film, 6.30, at the theatre in the State Library, Finding the Money, the big question. Or come and meet Stephanie at the
6: later event, the Radio National interview.
5: Yeah, on the 9th. Mm.
3: Great. We'll put a link to that in our show notes, which you can find on climatesafety.org. Info. In the meantime, just keep on and uh, be aware, and and let's be together.
5: Be disruptive. I
3: would say, be informed. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
5: yeah. good.
1: Many people say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. Someone told me the climate is changing and all we can do is watch as it warms Somebody told me that we could reverse it by changing the stuff we buy in stores But the stakes are enormous I'm talking floods and forest fires and storms So I'm thinking that we can make progress by changing the climate of norms The climate of what's cool and what's taboo Cause we've been in this place before It's kinda like segregation in the south before MLK kicked in the door It's kinda like apartheid in South Africa before Nelson Mandela walked free It's kinda like gay people trying trying to get married in the states before 2015 those laws all needed changing and so do the laws we have now only this time the laws are passing oppression down to your grandchild now it's someone in a coastal city in a developing nation being treated unequal cause one meter of sea level rise displaces 100 million people but the cultural climate is changing too we can feel that as social animals whether or not your neighbors have them is the best predictor of you getting solar panels you're not gonna stop people from competing with each other Keeping up with the Joneses But you can channel those competitions Into clean energy explosions You can amplify the upside Of heroic sustainability leadership You can celebrate success stories And spread the message over digital media You can name and shame offenders And call for the end of fossil fuel subsidies You can make it a political liability To give a free ride to polluting companies And you can reduce your energy use Yeah, that's a luxury you can afford So go on and flaunt that green bling And signal other people to get on board You can make waves in so many ways As many as possible just to be safe Each of us is just a drop in the bucket And buckets add up to a sea change All around I see the smoking
7: guns Telling everyone that it's going down We got floods coming up the coast People leaving homes Tell me where they're going now Look around and see the warning signs morning rise see the storm in tide well, I- what it looked like when the winds of change came and true to flight. Take a second it what could what might be. Only see the grim and the good less likely. That's why we really need a game plan now. How to get them greenhouse gases back down. The solar power windmills you already know. CO2 is too high right now. So how we gonna reverse the flow? Reforest the earth and let the green grow. Sounds good one problem. No space. Almost every acre of farm a place where the cows are grazing. The Amazon's ash and animal agriculture surpasses. We plane truck ship submissions. switch the plants so are we land up. Listen, hitting the tipping points now. We need America. Find it in your kitchen for your dinner or your cereal. Keep it simple, man. Take it from a server. Stop at the cow for a fat bean burger and chewing up seeds, nuts, and fruits that grew on trees that eat CO2. So,
1: see how you can make the mood improve. Multiply the solution, send it to your friends too. Every platform, every venue, let the wave making continue. Let it influence every level of our lives from the cars that we drive to the menu. Just don't let your enthusiasm for consumer action get you distracted. You can have an impact as an individual, but there's no substitute for pollution, taxes, eyes on the prize, a price on filthiness, that way the wealthiest pay for the bulk of the cost of transitioning, helping the helpless and keeping us well under 2 degrees celsius. Take a lesson from the major civil rights victories of past generations, unjust laws have got to be changed, it's not enough to say please don't be racist, and it's not enough to ask people nicely to embrace decarbonization, that tactic has been tried for decades. Emissions keep escalating, no time to waste, just keep making waves and taking this fight to ballot boxes. Vote with your wallets and load up on knowledge and all together I know we can solve this. Uh,
7: All around I see the smoking guns, telling everyone that it's going down. We got floods coming up the coast, people leaving homes. Tell me where they'll go now. Look around and see the warning signs every morning so then time